Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We've had quite a number of folks commenting in on episode 299, my interview with Dr. Jerry Werewell, called Does the Bible Support Abortion? That episode was very limited to focusing on a couple of texts relevant to building a Christian perspective on abortion. Essentially, we concluded, as on several previous episodes, that abortion on demand just doesn't fit with the biblical worldview. However, this is just one aspect of what the Bible teaches about bodies. In fact, there is so much more to say on the subject, so I thought it would be good this week to play out my presentation from a theological conference last year called Biblical Somatology. My aim for this research project was to mine the scriptures for information on the body, both how we should think about our bodies, as well as the boundaries God has placed on what we should do and not do with our bodies. Then by contrasting the biblical approach with our social issues related to bodies and sexuality, we can glimpse just a small bit of how genius God's boundaries are, as well as how they unleash human flourishing. Now, there's also a video version of this talk you can access, as well as a much more comprehensive paper with all the references and footnotes in it. So I encourage you to check those out if you're interested. Here now is episode 301, The Bible's View of the Body. Today, my focus is biblical somatology, and I want to look at how the Bible's view of the body cures social ills and unleashes human flourishing. So I have three main points to cover with you. First is I want to look at a biblical theology of the body. I want to just establish what the Bible says about the body. Not everything the Bible says about the body, because it's a lot, but uh, some of the main categories of thought, the conceptual categories. And then I want to look at the practical outworking. If you have a biblical somatology, how does that affect your life? And then last of all, I want to look at our culture and contrast what the Bible says with our own day's reigning somatology, which is the idea of personhood theory. So that's where we're headed. And to start with, let's get into the biblical theology of the Bible. I've got a few sub-points on this one. First is, any discussion, any Bible discussion about the human body has to begin in the beginning, right? With Genesis and creation and Adam and Eve. And so what we see... In Genesis 2 is a stunning sense of intimacy where God speaks over and over. Things come into existence, things, things function. And then when it comes to making the first man, everything sort of slows down. And it says in Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. God, in a sense, gets his hands dirty with the first human being, which bespeaks a certain intimacy, I think. And then he carefully makes the first woman as well. And when the man meets the first woman, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What Adam said about Eve was not, Ooh, you're different. It wasn't like, I don't know how we're going to make this work because you're just 
you're from Venus and I'm from Mars. And that's not at all what he said. The first man, when he saw the first woman, said, wow, look at how like me she is, not how different than me she is, which I think is interesting because that, that's not what we major on a lot of times when we talk about men and women. The other factor is that when God was making her, he said, I will make a helper suitable for you. And sometimes people say, oh, well, that's just like the man needed a secretary, someone to serve him. But that's not at all the, the meaning of the word helper. It's primarily used of God in the Torah. So uh, it's not at all an inferiority. What we see in Genesis really, and in the next verse here as well, is a mutuality, an equality between the two. And this, this other term, suitable, is actually the word opposite in Hebrew, neged. And it means someone that is your counterpart as opposed to somebody that is below you. It's, it's somebody that you're looking eye to eye at. So that's really the, the original starting point for any biblical somatology or anthropology is to say, in the beginning, God made humans. He gave us bodies. There's not a hint of criticism about our physical condition. And there's a real mutuality. Look at verse 24 here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's that mutuality again. Then later on, after the fall, in Genesis 9-6, we get this statement about murder. It says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. God made him in his own image. So... It's not that the image of God, the imago Dei, that's the Latin phrase for image of God, it's not like that was lost in the fall. Because eight chapters later in Genesis 9, even after the flood, there's this law that, that God lays down and he, and he says, look, people are in my image, so you can't, you can't kill each other. And so there's, there's a certain persistence of the image of God even beyond the fall itself. It doesn't say here, we'll get to this later, but it doesn't say here because the other person has high-functioning cognitive capabilities. It doesn't say because that other person contributes to society. It doesn't say that they're able-bodied. It just says, you know, man, human. It says that they're made in his image. So that'll, that'll come up in a bit here. But let's go on to uh, the fall because the Bible has a lot to say about our fallen condition as well, especially when it relates to our bodies. So the original temptation that God had forbidden was for the first people to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said that as a limitation in the garden. Eat whatever you want. Just don't eat from this one tree. The serpent, however, said, as probably you all know, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that's, that's the temptation. I don't know how much you've meditated on the temptation, but that original temptation is very much alive and well in our world today. The idea of God's holding me back with his rules. I need to, I need to be free. I need to be my true self. I need to reach out and realize my full human potential because these rules, they're stifling me. They're repressing me in some way. Uh, and, so, and so it was in the beginning. The serpent's question drove a wedge between God and humanity. Can we trust that the limitations he puts on us are for our well-being? Or should we take matters into our own hands? Are the boundaries God sets for us holding us back from reaching our true human potential? Or are they for our own good? 
Or to sharpen the question, could it be that God's restrictions are precisely what makes human flourishing possible? Of course, we know what happened. They ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. They, they did choose to, to reach out and to grasp hold of the, the forbidden knowledge of good and evil, and they rebelled against God. They somehow concluded that it was better for them that they would uh, drive a wedge between them and God and then take from this forbidden fruit than to stay in that relationship. And so sin enters the picture in the Bible, and it's more like a bulldog than a mosquito. Cain kills Abel. The blood is still hot on his hands, and God says, you know, where's your brother? And Cain's just like, am I my brother's keeper? When did I get assigned babysitting duty? I mean, there's a certain bravado there. I mean, after fratricide, to still, I mean, he doesn't even seem like he's sorry for what he did. And, and so it goes. It's like a big spiral, like when you flush a toilet, humanity down and down over the generations until we get to the time of Noah and the flood when every thought of everyone's heart is only evil continually. That's really the pits for the spread of our fallenness. And it goes on from there. So the human condition is that we are, in a sense, bent. We're not the way God made us originally. There's, there's a bentness to us. And it's not so much that our bodies are the problem. And what, what Paul calls this, starting in Romans 7 and going on from there, is the flesh. And so there's, there's an overlap between the flesh and the body, but they're not exactly the same thing. Because the flesh is bad, and the body was originally made by God. So I don't think we want to say the body is bad, although the body can have problems too. So let me just define flesh for a second. Flesh is your, your propensity, your, your drive to rebel against what God says is right. Can, can I just use that as a, a basic definition? Maybe we could argue about that in the, the questions and answers afterwards. But it's, it's, it's something that's often driven by bodily appetites, but it's not exclusive to bodily appetites. Uh, so as a result of this theology of fallen flesh that we find in the Bible, it, it has a much more pessimistic view of humankind than our present culture. It does not teach that people start out basically good. And then only those who suffer childhood abuse or trauma become damaged and dangerous. That's not what the Bible teaches. Instead, our default is to follow the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Notice the description from Ephesians 2 is not just limited to the body. It's also our minds that are part of the problem. But the summary word for this rebelliousness is flesh. Okay, so take it in more of a, a metaphorical sense. Don't think that if you just transferred your consciousness to a robot, you'd be fine. That's naive. All right, so that's, that's uh, on the one hand, creation theology. We have these august origins. We're made in the image of God. We're awesome. And then the fallenness in the Bible. We stink. We sin all the time. We kill each other. We rip each other off. We're always doing bad things to each other. So the Bible affirms both of those at the same time. And there's no contradiction there either. Because, like I said before, the image of God persists. You're made in the image of God. You bear the image of God and His likeness. And yet you still have this flesh that you deal with. Uh, so that brings us to holistic redemption here. Which is the idea that, first of all, holism, there's an integrated aspect to our minds and our bodies. So rather than looking at the body as a mere outer husk, like the Greek philosophers did, Socrates was mad when they cried after he took the poison. 
Socrates was uh, about to die. He took the poison, and people started weeping. They were genuinely sad because they were losing him. And they said, what's wrong with you? Why are you weeping for me? This, you should be celebrating. I finally get to leave this stupid body behind. It was always interrupting me when I was trying to meditate and philosophize. And now, finally, I'm going to achieve sort of like this, this state of ongoing cogitation without interruption. How, how dare you? And he, he kicked the people out of the room. You, you guys want to cry? You go somewhere else. That's not what we see in the, in, the, in the Bible. The Bible does not look at the body as a disposable husk and the soul as an inner essential kernel. It portrays the body as an integral and necessary part of the human person. The Hebrew people did not draw strong distinctions between the body and the mind. So, for example, Mary, when she was searching for... Jesus, when, after the crucifixion, she said, they have taken away my Lord. If she was a, a Platonist, she would say, well, my Lord somewhere else. They've taken away his body. She said, they have taken away my Lord in John 20, 13. Or in John 20, 15, Jesus is talking to her and she says, tell me, where have you laid him? She thought he was the gardener, right? She, she thinks she's talking to the gardener. She says, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. So even after death, she still looks at the body as the person. That, that this is her Lord. This is him, as opposed, or this is he, rather than this is his body. I mean, it is his body. I'm not saying that you, there's no difference between your mind and your body. I'm just saying that there's an assumption of an integrated aspect, an integrated holism throughout the Bible. And if we look at Jesus in particular, we see this clearest. So in the beginning, Jesus is born. The simple fact that God decided to save the human race through a human being dignifies the human condition, the fact that we are human bodies. I mean, if he, if he just sent down some spirit, a disembodied spirit of some sort, and that's, that's the, how redemption occurred, then that would say, well, our bodies are probably the problem. But it's a human being. And then on the cross, there is incredible integration between his body and his mind as Jesus is dying there. It's both. It's both and. It's not like his body didn't matter. And then certainly Jesus' resurrection, which prefigures our ultimate resurrection, shows that God is committed to human physicality, to our corporeality, that we will have bodies for eternal life. And that's in, in strong distinction or sharp contrast to what other people would have thought at that same time in the first century. Bodies weren't, they didn't have the celebrity cult like we do today, and they didn't have a lot of our ways of fooling each other to think we're better looking than we really are that we use. I mean, not that they didn't have anything, but anyhow. The fact that God chose to save the entire human race through a genuine human being dignifies humanity. Ultimately, if you think about Jesus' crucifixion, it was Jesus' body that bore the suffering and death, resulting in atonement. It was his lacerated back, his pierced hands and feet, his thorn-crowned head, his struggling lungs, his sweat, his tears, and most of all, his blood that made peace between us and God. As he hung there hour after hour, his body became a canvas depicting the horror of humanity's sin. The whole person, both body and mind, suffered and bore our grief and sorrow. 
They pierced and crushed him, the entire Jesus, for our transgressions and iniquities, so that with his wounds we are healed. His will and his body were one on the cross. He did not say, do with my body whatever you will. It doesn't matter anyhow. When they offered him a painkiller, you remember that? They offered him wine mixed with gall. He refused to drink it and disassociate from his surroundings. No, he remained an integrated whole person on that cross. If you think about how Jesus died, he was an integrated whole person. And, and, so, and so we find throughout the scripture. So Jesus' example shows integrated holism, and it shows how the whole person really matters throughout the Bible. I mean, I could look at many other scriptures from the Hebrew Bible or from the New Testament and show you this, but I think Jesus is, is a, a, a great example of this. The simple fact is God cares about the whole person. He cares about all of you. He cares about your body. He cares about your mind. He cares about whatever other parts of you you want to divide yourself into, your emotions, your your memory skills, I don't know. Whatever, whatever you got, he cares about the whole you. As evidenced by Romans 12, 1 through 2, where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Interesting. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Look at that integrated approach right there. You've got in Romans 12.1, your bodies a living sacrifice. In Romans 12.2, don't allow your minds to be conformed to this age. Right? So God cares about our whole per all of us. Which brings us to the more sensitive subject of the body aesthetic. Physique, romance, and the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, which is a, a, a lovely book of the Bible. I was quite honestly afraid of it in a sense, or I don't know, maybe shy about really studying it for a long time. <laughs> this past year, I, I delved in with our, our home study group for eight weeks, and I was just blown away by how surprisingly relevant it seemed to my life and, and to our culture today. Anyhow, do you know, out of curiosity, what the, what the uh, third most watched YouTube video is on the planet? Anybody want to take a guess? Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style is number two. Good guess. Good guess. <clears throat> I was thinking of using that one instead. But the, 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 fir the first one is, is some um, Spanish song. It's like a Spanish love song which I had never heard of, but everyone else in my home group did, had heard of it, so it doesn't mean <laughs> much that I had. But number three is Ed Sheeran's uh, Shape of You, which is, uh, over, has received over 3 billion, 3.4 billion views, uh, and it's not even that old. So I thought, well, you might not be able to read this. It's in the, it's in the paper as well, but what if, we, what if we took his lyrics? This is the third most watched video on the planet in the history of YouTube, which, you know, that's saying something. And we're going to put it up against the Song of Songs, okay? So we'll just do a little compare and contrast between our culture and their culture. All right, so on the left side, and I'm not going to sing this, not that I could really sing anyhow, but I don't even really remember the melody, 
So which I'm just going to read it to you. And if you read it without like the, the melody in your head, it's, it's better, I think. Uh, this is what he says. He says, the club isn't the best place to find a lover. So the bar is where I go. Me and my friends at the table doing shots, drinking faster than we talk slow. Come over and start up a conversation with just me, and trust me, I'll give it a chance now. Take my hand, stop, put Van the Man on the jukebox, and then we start to dance, and now I'm singing like, and then you have the girl part and the guy part. This is the guy singing to the girl. Girl, you know I want your love. Your love was handmade for somebody like me. Come on now, follow my lead. I may be crazy, don't mind me. Then her part. Say, boy, let's not talk too much. Grab on my waist and put that body on me. Come on now, follow my lead. Come, come on now, follow my lead. I'm in, and this is the chorus. I'm in love with the shape of you. We push and pull like a magnet do. Although my heart is falling too, I'm in love with your body. And last night you were in my room and now my bed sheets smell like you. Every day discovering something brand new, I'm in love with your body. And this isn't the whole song, but um, this is verse, the first verse. And then later on, they actually go on a date now that they've slept together and they start to get to know each other over Chinese food and they talk about their families. So it's like sex first and then relationship later. This is what we call a hookup in our culture today. Then we have the Song of Songs, which uh, I, I took from two different parts from chapter two and chapter four and put them together. It says, he brought me to the house of wine. So you see that goes right along with, we're not going to the club, we're going to the bar. He brought me to the house of wine, and his intent for me is love. Refresh me with raisins, revive me with apples, because I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, his right arm embraces me. I want you to promise, O young women of Jerusalem, by gazelles and does of the field, do not disturb, do not excite love until it desires. Awake, O... And this is when you find the desire being fulfilled here in chapter 4. Awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices spread. Let my lover come to his garden. Let him eat its best fruit. I have come to my garden. This is the guy speaking now. My sister and my bride. I have plucked my myrrh with my spices. I have eaten my nectar with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink. This is like the community. Eat, friends, drink, and become intoxicated with lovemaking. So, interesting contrast. What, I wonder what you think about that. Although the context of these songs couldn't be more different, their similarities are striking. Which is more erotic? I suppose the answer depends on the eye of the beholder, right? One is a hookup, while the other involves a married couple, but both are overwhelmed with the feeling of love. In a pre-industrial agrarian society, talk of Raisins, apples, gazelles, doughs, spices, honey, wine, and milk evoke luxurious tastes and flavors, which by analogy convey the pleasantness of the couple's relationship and lovemaking. Our culture may benefit from a thorough consideration of this book, not because the Song of Songs challenges sexual expression, but because it does so well talking about it. Song of Songs is a work, this is a, a quote from Hannah Block, a work of subtlety and sophistication remarkable for its artistic control and elegant finish. It addresses the same God-designed gift of romance that our love songs handle, but it is at once more voluptuous and more reticent. It does not reduce love to sex or lovers to bodies, but it offers an integrated celebration of them all. 
the woman in particular in the Song of Songs is extremely impressive how she handles herself. At least to me it is. She's confident. She has a realistic body image. She's the dominant voice. She's the one who opens the book. She closes the book. The most profound lines in the book in, in the uh, last chapter are spoken by the woman. She pursues the man. She's not shy. She's in tune with her desires. That's for sure. And uh, you know, a lot of times in the book, the, the two are, are sort of like pursuing each other, trying to get together. And then uh, just as they get together, the, the poem ends or the song ends and then they're separated again. And so then they're trying to get back together. And uh, I, I think you have to be careful with the Song of Songs, not to read it too narratively, because I mean, it is a song. Uh, and you know, not that it doesn't have narrative components, but like trying to figure out a chronology for everything is very difficult in, in the song. But uh, in it, they have these body descriptions. They're called wasps. It's like a, not, not like a B, that's with a P, this is with an F. Wasp, and uh, it's an Arabic word describing uh, when, when someone writes a poem about their lover's body. And there are three or four of these in the Song of Songs. And I have a sample in, in the paper for you. I don't have time to look through it. But essentially what they do is they just go through the, the body parts. Uh, you, you probably know the line, your hair is like a flock of goats. That's like the classic line from the... Uh, the guy trying to be romantic there. And uh, I don't think the point there, <laughs> it's, it's easy to make fun of it, but like, if, if you really try to enter their world a bit, you'll, you'll be blown away by how impressive that is. The point is not that it literally looks like a flock, it's just how that flock moves as it's going down the hill. He's saying her hair is wavy and it moves in a really awesome way. All right, so. These wasps tell us one thing for sure, which is that they thought the human body was good. And there's a celebration of physical appearance we find there. However, they stop short where Frank Sinatra kept singing. You remember when he sang, Fly Me to the Moon, that one line where he says, Fill my heart with song, let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. You see, our culture goes even further where it's whereas the Bible is like celebrating the human body and romance and everything else but it doesn't collapse into body worship it doesn't collapse into idolatry um, it there, there's a restraint there but at the same time a celebration so I think there's a lot there to help us in our own time for figuring out these kinds of issues but uh, that's all I have time for on that subject I've, I wrote a lot more in the paper if you're interested in that one Moving on, so that's number one, the biblical theology of the body. We have creation theology, yet we're fallen. There's a whole, the human is an integrated whole. And the aesthetic is honest, very realistic, and very exalted. Now, when we get to the biblical outworking, uh, I like to use the analogy of a bag of chips. Any of you have ever eaten a bag of chips? I'm talking about the whole bag, not like a little personal bag. Uh, so the, the way this works, I'll have you know, is that uh, that first chip hits your tongue. And whatever, whatever kind you like, maybe you're more into the corn, maybe you're more into the potato, whatever kind of chip is your chip. Just imagine for a moment when it hits your tongue, there's that rush of flavor, right? There's a cascade of chemical reactions that we call taste. And then you chew and there's the delightful crunch, right? <laughs> and then you swallow and you're like, wow, 
That chip was awesome. So what do you do? You reach in. Chip number two. Chip number two is good. It's not quite as good, but it's pretty close. And then you, you, you eat chip number two, and then uh, chips three, four, and five usually come in a handful, right? So, <laughs> and then, uh, so you just, and you, and you keep eating your chips, and then suddenly your bag's empty, and uh, I heard this from the CEO of the, uh, the company that makes chips. Uh, I think it's Coca-Cola owns Lay's, but she said that a typical man, when he gets to the bottom of a bag of chips, lifts it up and gets all of the little crunchies out of it. Whereas uh, ladies don't tend to do that. Maybe they do it, just not around other guys. You know, it's, they're like in the, in the back room doing it. But uh, yeah, so then you get all, all the little fragments out of your chips. And uh, that's a good example of a bodily appetite, right? And the problem, of course, is that by the time your body sends the signal to your brain, we're done. It's too late, right? It's always too late. And so then... And if, you, and if you continue in that fashion with your, how you handle yourself in life, then you, you have to face other consequences for that, right? And so the body, it tells you you're hungry. That's good. But eating the whole bag of chips, not good. Okay, so there's got to be somewhere in between there. So what I'm saying is that your body is sort of like hardwired, your bodily appetites, to show you something of, of, of what God has designed but it's a cloudy picture of it, and it's only partial. So what God does is he gives us boundaries to help us figure out how to handle bodily appetites within a way that's honoring to him. So I just threw up here some examples. So you have like drinking alcohol in the Bible. The boundary is do it within moderation, remain sober. And then the sin, when you take drinking outside of that, is drunkenness. Or eating food, if you take it outside of the boundary of moderation, you end up in gluttony. If you take working outside of the boundaries that God set up, take a day off. You could look at it from an Old Testament perspective. They had festivals where you're supposed to take time off or the Sabbath day and so on. And then uh, if you take it one way and you don't work, then you're lazy. Or you take it the other way and then you overwork, right? And so this is what happens where God sets up a boundary and then... Uh, we, we take something outside of that boundary, it turns into sin. Or having sex, the boundary there is heterosexual marriage. Uh, you take it outside of that, we'll talk about the different sins, sexual sins, adultery, prostitution, and so on. Sleeping, if you oversleep, then you end up committing the sin of the sluggard in Proverbs. You remember that proverb where it's like a, like a door turning on its hinges, so is a sluggard in his bed? You, know, you ever feel like that? You're just like, just roll over and go back to sleep. That's a good one. Killing, God puts boundaries on that. Dressing, uh, modest clothes of the same gender. So you have promiscuity or cross-dressing if you take it outside of that. I, I don't have references for these, but this is just a general way of thinking about the different boundaries God put in place. Now, I, I can't cover all these in the time that I have left. And so since the Bible has more print on sexual misbehavior, and that's the more dominant issue in our culture today. I'm just going to focus on that one, but this would apply to any of these. If we look at sexual sins, there are a lot of them. I, I tried to get them all. I tried to be thorough, but uh, you never know. I might have missed one. And uh, I've got a list here of all the Old Testament and New Testament sexual sins that I could find. All of these sexual sins result from taking sex, which God designed, 
outside of the boundary of marriage. If, if, you, if you keep it inside the boundary of marriage, you can't do those things. God invented human genitalia and their accompanying sensations. He did not create these aspects of our bodies to test us or frustrate us. He designed them as part of his good plan for the human experience within the confines of marriage. This arrangement is neither arbitrary nor is it stifling. Rather, the marriage commitment provides a framework for vulnerability and trust, enabling optimal sexual expression. So long as intercourse occurs within what Tim Keller calls a consumer relationship, the experience degenerates into performance, manipulation, and dehumanization. However, within the biblical perspective of covenant, coming together is a physical expression of oneness that mirrors the spiritual commitment each spouse has made to the other. So what I'm trying to say is that the boundary that God gave us for sex in particular, which is marriage, is not, it's just like the Garden of Eden. It's not something to ruin our lives. It's something to provide us with a framework for flourishing. And when we take sex outside of that, then we get into all these social ills that are plaguing us today. And here are some of those. Cohabitation is where you live together before marriage. More than half of, of people that get married these days have lived together prior to marriage, which has been steadily growing. According to the American College of Pediatricians, cohabitation before marriage is associated with lower marriage satisfaction. Did you catch that? Lower marital satisfaction dedication and confidence, as well as increased negative communication with couples spending less time together and men spending more time on personal leisure. There is more violence and a higher rate of divorce. The doctors of the American College of Pediatricians urge their adolescent patients to avoid cohabitation and to recognize the lifelong benefits of marriage. Saving the sexual relationship for marriage brings physical, emotional, and mental benefits to a couple. This sounds like it was written in 1955. This is a statement from January of 2017. And this is not a Christian organization, per se. I mean, I'm sure there are Christians in it. There are Christians everywhere. But this is, this is just like looking at the, the human flourishing aspect of marriage versus cohabitation. And they're just like, yeah, please do marriage because it's way better. 46% experienced their mother cohabitating with someone by the age of 16 today. After three years of cohabitating, 49% of these couples are going to split up, whereas only 11% for married people. So what I'm saying to you is that the biblical boundary, what I'm saying to you is that cohabitation is actually bad for human flourishing, and the biblical boundary excludes cohabitation because it says that you're supposed to be married. Uh, the next one is sexually transmitted diseases, which is a major problem in our, in our society today. The CDC in 2017 had a press release titled STDs at Record Highs, Urgent Need for Prevention. That was 2017. The uh, director of the CDC's STD prevention said STDs are a persistent enemy, growing in number, outpacing our ability to respond. He calls STDs an epidemic accelerating in multiple populations. Now, if you, if you look on social media and somebody posts a, a meme that says, 
this thing is an epidemic, you, you shouldn't be all that alarmed. There's always an epidemic. There's always some like shocking thing that's going to ruin the world. But this is the CDC. This guy's not like, he's not looking for likes. All right. He is, <laughs> he's concerned about the health of Americans. According to the APA, 60 to 80% of North American college students have, will have a hookup experience in college. And many of them are not concerned about STDs. Now, of course, if you are someone that limits sex to marriage, and assuming you marry somebody that is healthy, you don't have to worry about STDs at all. It's just not even a concern. Uh, then you have prostitution. Uh, prostitution in the United States is uh, one of the most dangerous jobs. It's worse than Alaskan fishermen. It's worse than oil rig workers. It's worse than loggers. It has a death rate of 204 out of 100,000. Prostitutes are assaulted physically, violently, at least once a month on average. And they do not go to the police because their job's illegal. And uh, they also have all the other problems that I'm sure you can imagine. STDs, unwanted pregnancies, being objectified, dehumanized. Also, there are 80,000 prostitution arrests each year in the United States, costing $200 million. Once again, the biblical ethic would exclude prostitution. Uh, then we have the issue of adultery. Now, adultery is really hard to get any kind of reliable data on. I was able to get good data on most things here. But uh, as it turns out, adulterers don't offer that information up <laughs> to uh, people doing statistics. So uh, I had one estimate that said between 30 and 60% of all married people will step out on their spouse at some point. More conservative estimate said 22% for men, 14% uh, for women. If we go with that lower number, one in four or five, we'll just go really low. One in five men. Uh, will commit adultery on their wife at some point. So that's, to me, that's staggering. It's, it's a huge number uh, for, for us today in our society. It's, it's become more widespread. Of course, uh, many of you heard about the Ashley Madison hack that occurred in 2015. That's a website whose slogan is, quote, life is short, have an affair, end quote. And uh, so millions of members of this website were exposed uh, when, the, when it was hacked. So this is, this, is a, this is a real live issue in our world today. And the problem, there are many problems with adultery, but one of them is that it's a, it's a relational bomb that just obliterates trust. It's, it's, bad, it's bad for the marriage, okay? Uh, it's a very mild way of putting it. In fact, it, it often leads to violence. Uh, it can even lead to murder where uh, you, somebody wants to kill either of the two that were involved. Um, it, the cost to children is incalculable. It leads to divorce, which is expensive. And, you know, it leads to everything that is the opposite of human flourishing. Not taken from a Christian perspective, but just from a human perspective, adultery is toxic. And so once again, the biblical ethic of sex within marriage would eliminate adultery if you choose to live that way. Sexual harassment. Uh, in 2017, we had on Twitter the hashtag MeToo movement. And uh, I'm sure you're aware of a lot of the high-profile men who were fired and uh, fell from high positions of power because of being exposed for sexual harassment. Sexual har harassment causes victims to feel uncomfortable. It makes them take time off work. 
it reduces productivity, it causes people to quit, causes people to sue, and if you have a high profile case, the public relations costs are huge. One survey found that one in three women between 18 and 35, between 18 and 34, have faced sexual harassment at the job. Over, the overwhelming majority of sexual harassers are men looking for, to have relations with women they do not intend to marry. I mean, can we agree, agree on that? The, the, the majority, the, the lion's share, are men looking to uh, hook up with women that they're not intending to marry. So once again, the Bible teaching that puts marriage before sex would eliminate sexual harassment, plus with the fact that the Bible teaches respect. Respect for men, respect for women, this whole idea of mutuality in the Bible. And then, uh, I'm just cruising through this briefly, this is the last one. Rape is also a huge problem in our world today. The Association of American Universities in 2015 did a survey of 150,000 students at 27 colleges and found that nearly one in four female seniors has been a victim of unwanted sexual contact with 11% experiencing penetration. I mean, it's just rampant in our world today. 4% in prisons among men, 3.2% in, in jails suffer rape. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network estimates that more than 300,000 people, including children, suffer sexual violence each year in America. Uh, the Bible's somatology, once again, cuts the feet out from assault since it recognizes the dignity and value of the other and limits sexual contact to marriage. So you see my strategy here over and over again is to say that, yeah, from one side you could say God's sexual ethic and you know, what the, the boundaries of the body are, are limiting, but in another sense, what are they limiting you from? All of these things. <laughs> so is that a bad thing? Let's consider the tomato plant. Although we haven't examined every sexual issue facing our society, this brief survey shows just how robust the biblical boundary of sex within marriage is. For far from stifling and repressing sexual expression, God's marriage limitation actually unleashes the best for us. For the sake of analogy, let's consider a wild tomato plant. As its fruit grows, the branches become heavier and eventually the plant tips over. Many of the tomatoes will rest on the ground, inviting pests and rot to spoil the fruit. However, when a wise gardener attaches the plant to a stake, she at once limits the direction the plant can grow while enabling it to become much taller. So it limits the plant, but it also enables the plant with the end result that it produces more delicious tomatoes. This is like the boundaries God placed on his people. It is true. God's boundaries curb freedom. That's true but not to hold us back from reaching our potential. Rather, his boundaries enable us to maximize the good in our lives. And I'm not saying that if you limit sex to marriage, you're never gonna have any problems in that department. Okay, there's, there's plenty of other issues. We do live in a fallen world. I'm just, I'm just saying that it does eliminate a number of these social ills that I just mentioned there. All right, so finally, on to point number three, which is personhood theory. This is Nancy Piercy. She wrote a book called Love Thy Body this year. Phenomenal book. It's going to be our guide for the last part of this presentation. She writes, the key to understanding all 
the controversial issues of our day is that the concept of the human being has likewise been fragmented into upper and lower story. Secular thought today assumes a body-person split with the body defined in the fact realm by empirical science, lower story, and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights, the upper story. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. This is huge. And so this is her, this is her diagram here. She, uh, she got this idea from Francis Schaeffer. She studied with him at Labrie. And this the idea of the two-story way of thinking. On the top story, you have the person, and that's your, your, your mind, right? Your, your mental life, your true self. That is the free part of you where you have rights, right? Human rights, and you have gender. Gender is a, a fact of your mind, so they say. Then you have the body, which is a lower story. Now the body, you know, it's just physical, it's malleable biology, it's mechanistic, it's expendable. That's where you have your biological sex, but your gender is in your mind, of course. I think you can see where I'm heading with some of this here. So what Piercy does is she works through five issues in her book, and uh, I've got 15 minutes, so why not work through five issues here? Ever so briefly, you know, the paper is, is a survey of what the Bible says, and then a survey of how that affects our culture. And so any one of these could, could lead to much more research and consideration. But okay, first off, abortion. Science has really changed how the abortion discussion is happening today. Increasingly pro-abortion proponents admit that the fetus is a human life. I mean, the science has, embryology has progressed to such a point where it's like kind of undeniable. However, however, they don't recognize the unborn as a human person. So it's a human life, but not all human lives automatically have human rights unless it's a human person. That's personhood theory. So they say that the unborn is not a person since she or he is not, is not self-aware. You don't have actual consciousness yet. In 2013, bioethicists Alberto Giubilini and Francesca Minerva wrote a staggering paper where they said, newborns are not persons. They are potential persons because they can develop those properties which will make them persons. And they advocated what they called post-birth abortion. Now, this is the inevitable consequence of personhood theory. It's completely consistent. So, in other words, if you're okay with killing a three-day-old baby in a diaper with that little cute hat they put on them and snuffing out that life, then you can justify abortion as well. Because they really go together if you're going to use the personhood theory as a way of thinking about human dignity and value. Now, if you contrast that, the biblical point of view says that the womb is not a, a murky limbo of human potentiality. Not at all. The womb is a perceivable region, like according to Psalm 139, the sea, the sky, the darkness, where God is pr at present and at work. From a Christian perspective, humans don't earn personhood, and neither do governments grant it. 
from a Christian perspective or a biblical perspective, your dignity, your value is inherited from your ancestors all the way back to the first two who are made in the image of God. You know, we all have that inherited image of God in us. So by default, regardless of your mental capacities, you have that, that value, that honor. It's, it's just built in right from the start. So it's a, it's a very different approach than what we're seeing today. And then we have euthanasia. Euthanasia is, uh, comes from the Greek that means good death. It's the idea of assist, physician-assisted suicide or assisted suicide. When I think of euthanasia, I think of the, the, the case where someone is in uh, just horrible physical agony. There's no hope of ever getting better, and they're going to die soon anyhow. And they're like, oh, can you just help me to go to sleep? And uh, that's, that's what I think of when I think of the right to die kind of uh, situation. But as it turns out, in, in America, the, the places where this is legal, in those jurisdictions, only 24% say that debilitating pain is their reason for seeking euthanasia. And a paltry 3% are worried about medical costs. 91% of those seeking euthanasia want to die because they fear losing autonomy. 89% worry about a diminishment in their ability to engage in activities. So let me ask you this. Does that mean that people consider their worth on the basis of what they can do as opposed to who they are? And if you think about it, it's really the same way of thinking with regular suicide. I mean, why does anyone commit suicide? It's because they think their life is no longer worth living. And so people have imbibed a utilitarian calculus for human life. They don't see their life as having value if they can't do everything they used to do. And so they're like, I, I don't have, there, there's no sense of like, I have an innate dignity. It's like dependent on my capabilities. In a world of assigned personhood, as opposed to inherited dignity, the state can decide which humans are persons and therefore worthy of human rights. Uh, Nancy Piercy muses about this situation when she writes, cancer drugs can cost anywhere from $3,000 to $6,000 a month, while the cost of lethal medication is about $35 to $50, and there's no recurring prescription. One-time fee. It doesn't take a genius to see, she goes on, that the easiest way to reduce healthcare costs is physician-assisted suicide. When human life is no longer seen to have inherent value, it will be subject to purely utilitarian calculation of costs and benefits. Voluntary euthanasia may not remain voluntary. Contrast this to the biblical somatology. People have dignity regardless of cognitive abilities, social contributions, physical abilities. God is sovereign over life. Deuteronomy 32, 39, I wound, I heal, I kill, I make alive. And who is there to stand in my way? Right? I mean, God claims sovereignty over life, which is why Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern hospice movement in the last century, decided she needed to make a change in end-of-life treatment. People kept looking at the disease. She looked at the patient. And she put the focus on the patient instead of the disease. And she pioneered this whole field of palliative care. So that rather than killing people or making them suffer, 
There's a third option where you can, you can affirm the dignity of life and also offer some sort of amelioration for pain. Today, 45% of all deaths in the U.S. happen in hospice care, which, again, is a Christian organization, at least it started as a Christian organization. It's dominated by Christians even still today. This sets up the contrast starkly. On the one hand, the secular worldview reduces the suffering and the needy to sub-personhood, especially if their minds degrade. On the other, Christians lift up the disabled, the elderly, the chronically ill, to God's own image. The former results in a culture of death, whereas the latter leads to creative solutions to improve life, however limited. Now we go on to the hookup culture. Uh, do any of you see the Men in Black movie, the original? Any, anybody? Like three people? Come on, I thought there would be more sci-fi people in here. There's this one scene where the lady in the morgue has this corpse and she touches his ear and his face opens. And inside of it, there's a little alien and there, he's surrounded by all these little levers and uh, a screen. And what he's been doing the whole time is he, this little alien has been piloting a body. It's not really a human body. It's a robot that looks like a human. And I think this is a good summary for personhood theory. It's the idea that you're piloting your body. Your body's not you. It doesn't define you. It's not who you are. It's just something you use. You're using your body. You know, like in the song, put that body on me. Right? <laughs> so I think that's a helpful analogy. But anyhow, Piercy says... On this issue, she says, if you have not talked with young people lately, you may not realize how soulless the hookup culture is. A hookup can be any level of physical involvement, from kissing to sexual intercourse. According to the rules of the game, you are not to become emotionally attached. No relationship, no commitment, no exclusivity. The script is that you are supposed to be able to walk away from the experience as if it did not happen. And so this mindset defies science. The science of sex is, is clear. You can read about it if you want. You know, all the different chemicals evolve, but one of the, one of the significant ones is oxytocin, which is, and it causes feelings of attachment. It's the same chemical released when a mother, uh, a, a mother is nursing her infant. And so you have to actually train your mind to not, to not feel what your body is feeling in order to have this happen. This is what I, what I call body schizophrenia. It's not psychologically healthy. And we already talked about all the issues of casual sex or sex outside of marriage. We talked about STDs, sexual harassment, rape, all these other things. By contrast, the integrated holism of the Bible's somatology lifts sex up from the muck and mire of genital infections, the chaos of cohabitation, the heartbreak of adultery, the brutality of rape, the disrespect of sexual harassment, and the vulnerability of prostitution to a psychosomatic experience with a transcendent spiritual meaning. The wife and husband renew their commitment to each other through physical union and demonstrate the magnificence of Christ's loving relationship to the church. It's a much higher view of sex than we find in the hookup culture. And so once again, the, the biblical position leads towards human flourishing better than the culture's personhood theory. All right, then we have the last two. I'll try to be brief here. Uh, homosexuality. Th there's this idea of body plan. You, don't think about humans for a second. Just think of an animal. You see, you see animals, right? And they have body plans. They have parts. And there's a teleology to anatomy, especially when we're talking about species that reproduce sexually as opposed to asexually. And you can kind of see like this one goes with that one. 
you know, the boy one goes with the girl one. Homosexuality defies that. Homosexuality says my body plan, my anatomy, they do not define me. I identify myself with my experience of sexual attraction. Now this, it, it creates a, a fragile and vulnerable ego because the, the, if anyone questions your sexual behavior, you think they're questioning your very personhood because that's your identity. You've identified yourself with your attractiveness. Same thing if you were heterosexual and, and, and somebody questioned you on that. It's just, it's just not a suitable place to anchor your identity in your, in your experience of sexual attraction. And that's why Mark Yarhouse, who's an evangelical psychologist, and Lisa Diamond, who's a lesbian APA researcher, both agree that your sexual attraction changes over time on a spectrum. And that there, there is, it's not fixed. So if you, and it's different for different people, it's not 100% one way or another, but if you anchor yourself, your true inner self, on something that's not fixed, it, it, it causes a lot of vulnerability. Think of a football player. He goes out on the field, he plays for 10 years, he just loves the, the roar of the crowd. He, he he's like, that's who I am, I'm a football player. And that's, no, nobody's ever gonna change that, that's my identity. And then he gets injured. And now it's been a couple of decades. Nobody even remembers really who he was or what he did back in the old days, the glory days. And so now he's depressed. He's already spent all his money that he earned in the NFL. And so football, the problem with this guy is that football wasn't just what he did. It was who he was. And now he's devastated. He's not, he's not contributing to society. He's depressed. He's not able to make a living. So what is that? That is where you take your identity and you put it on your cognitive ability or your physical ability. It's unhealthy, ultimately. Sexual attraction, physical prowess, and even intellectual abilities all result in vulnerable identities, easily injured at the slightest challenge. In contrast, the biblical view both takes seriously the teleology inherent in God's design of the body, but it also provides a stable identity based on God's grace not our shifting feelings and experiences. That doesn't mean that those of us who struggle with same-sex attraction have it easy. Space does not permit me to tell of the testimonies of Rosaria Butterfield and Jackie Hillperry, who went from lesbian lifestyles to committed heterosexual marriages. Nor can we look at Sam Albury, Christopher Yuan, Wesley Hill, Beckett Cook, all of whom have heroically embraced singleness because of Christ. Whichever way same-sex attracted Christians go, their worth, their value emerge from God's decision to make them in his own image. We need not lay our foundations upon the shifting sands of physical, intellectual, emotional, or sexual proclivities, but instead on the bedrock of being God's creations, his children. Furthermore, he deemed us so worthy and lovable that he gave his only begotten son to redeem us so that we could spend eternity with him. He wants to spend forever with us. Base your identity on that. And you'll be able to handle the storms of life and the times when people question how smart you really are or how fast you can really run or whatever other things you do in life. Okay, last, last up we have uh, transgenderism. There's a lot to be said about this and about gender dysphoria. Mark Yarhouse wrote a, a great book about the subject if you're interested in uh, going further into it. What we have is a 
contradiction between the mind and the body. The mind says, I, so I'm biologically male, in case you didn't know. So if, I, if, if my mind says I'm female and my body says I'm male, that's a, that's a contradiction between the, the mind and the body. So the reigning solution in our culture today is change the body to match the mind. You have a mental problem, a psychological problem. I don't perceive myself as a male. Or gender dysphoria is the idea that when I see my, my maleness, so to speak, I, I suffer acute mental anguish. Right? That's a genuine condition that's extremely rare, but it's like the number one thing everyone's talking about in our culture. But uh, So what they do is they say, well, you just wear, just cross-dress, and then that'll make you feel better. Or have everyone call you by a different pronoun. So you call me she instead of he, and then that'll make me, not, it'll alleviate my gender dysphoria. Or use puberty blockers, sexual reassignment surgery, you know, whatever. Just like somehow fix your surroundings so that it matches your mental uh, reality. Uh, so I have this, this it's, it's pretty dumb, but it's just like a little parable illustration. It's based on the emperor's new clothes. Uh, I called it the emperor's nudity dysphoria. There once was an emperor who suffered from nudity dysphoria. Catching even the slightest reflection of his naked body elicited sharp pangs of mental anguish. Furthermore, he can't stand clothes because they restrict his movement and cause him to sweat. To ameliorate his condition, he has not only removed all mirrors and reflective surfaces at eye level throughout his palace, but he's also forbidden them in his entire realm. One day, a visitor from across the sea saw the king in the marketplace and inquired, Why is the emperor naked? With fear in her eyes, a nearby citizen whispered, Shh, it's forbidden to say he's unclothed. He says it's not right to impose others' sense of what it means to be clothed on him. He has the right to identify himself as clothed regardless of his physical condition. The visitor retorted, That's preposterous. Anyone can see he's naked. Don't you have scientists in this kingdom who use facts and logic to arrive at truth? Well, we did have some in the guild who insisted on the emperor's Nudity as an objective fact, but they were all charged with hate speech and told to change their truth so that it wouldn't offend those who struggle with nudity dysphoria or suffer banishment. A group of those intolerant conservatives could not accept this, so they had to leave the realm. However, some of our most progressive and creative scientists hypothesized a glorious, invisible, immaterial fabric, even if such a substance is beyond the scope of their instruments. They are sure it exists. <laughs> So what's going on here? Who's coercing whom? The emperor is coercing everyone else in the realm to identify him as clothed when he's naked. And he's, he's, he's outcasting anyone who, who defies his totalitarian delusion. Uh, now, the, the problem is not everyone who identifies as transgender is... Is, is in the same boat, and I, I don't have the time to nuance all this, but there are genuine people who struggle with gender dysphoria. It's a real condition, and it's, it's, it's really painful, and it stinks. And so here's the question. Here's the challenge for those of us who are going to say, well, yeah, it stinks, but you can't disfigure your body to solve it. So what do we say to these people? Well, I think we need to move like what happened with Cicely Saunders in this, the hospice movement, where you had somebody in agony... And, and you had some people who are like, well, that stinks, and you're just going to have to tough it out. Or other people would say, well, just kill them. 
And then the, the Christian came along like, oh, wait, wait a second. Let's find a third way forward. So if you have a psychological problem, I would say seek a psychological solution. So counseling, psychotropics, prayer, meditation, something in that category seems like it would fit better than forcing all of society to say the opposite of what is in front of them or physical um, surgery and that sort of thing. So I think the ball is on our court as Christians, to, especially Christian scientists, to, to find a reasonable solution uh, or a helpful solution to, to this problem. But once again, personhood theory is the underlying uh, genie in the bottle here that, that uh, we, we don't always detect. All right, so concluding. Let's say a husband gives his wife yellow roses or flowers. Those aren't roses, are they? Yellow flowers. And uh, she says, okay, whatever. And she spray paints them the color she likes. How does that make the husband feel? A little confused, right? Or maybe even heartbroken if he spent a lot of money and these flowers, that yellow color meant a lot to him or whatever. Uh, now, instead, instead, let's say she receives them and puts them in that, that water with those, uh, what are those, like vitamins they put in there? Something that makes it last longer. That honors the gift, right? So our bodies are a gift from God. We need to, we, we, we can do stuff to our bodies. We can, you know, I don't think the issue is makeup here or, you know, nutrition. I think that's all good stuff. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you caring for the body, stewarding it in accordance with how God intended the gift to be given and received? Or are you totally changing it and say, yeah, your design was, was, was a good start, but uh, I'm going to totally change everything to be different. So... That's really the question for us today. And so in conclusion, uh, Piercy writes, We live in a moral wasteland where human beings are desperately seeking answers to hard questions about life and sexuality. But there is hope. In the wasteland, we can cultivate a garden. We can discover a reality-based morality that expresses a positive, life-affirming view of the human person. One that is more inspiring and more appealing and more liberating than the secular worldview. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode here. If you want to look at the YouTube for this presentation, it's got the slides in it. You might find those helpful or check out the paper on restitutio.org, just under papers on the top menu there. You can find it with all the relevant properly cited references in the footnotes. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, we have had a lot of comments coming in on episode 299, Does the Bible Support Abortion with Jerry Werewolf? I, I want to read out just uh, at least a couple of snippets of those and make a general point here because I, I am quite frankly concerned about some of the tone that is coming through in these comments. One commenter, Miranda, writes, I think your podcast could have done more in helping people to understand the seriousness of abortion. Abortion is dark. It is evil and demonic. And uh, she goes on from there. Tracy Z writes in and at one point remarks, Well said, Miranda. I agree that the discussion was a bit weak in making a firm biblical stand against killing unborn babies. Barbara writes in and says, While I am glad the subject is being aired, I was very disappointed to hear you say that there is just one text which directly addresses abortion. 
Not only are there many scriptures which dictate a biblical worldview concerning abortion, but Exodus 21, which you cite, has nothing to do with abortion. It refers to unintentional damage to a baby in the womb. That would be the opposite of abortion. Abortion is just an updated version of child sacrifice, which we know God hates. The scriptural fact that he hates bloodshed pertains directly. The list of things God hates, Proverbs 6, leaves us in no doubt as to whether choice would be acceptable. And then last of all, I wanted to read a little bit from Jenny, who writes, Dear Sean, if you wanted to air a discussion on modern abortion, then Exodus 21, regardless of the translation, should not even have been mentioned. If this verse was so important, then maybe the podcast should be titled, What Should Be the Jail Time for Male-to-Male Assault?, where a pregnant woman is inadvertently injured, causing a spontaneous miscarriage. Well, Jenny, that would be a rather long title for a podcast. She goes on, As a health professional, the credibility of this podcast was lost on me early on as I ceased listening. After recent encouragement, I labored to the end without aborting again. Child sacrifice must be rejected in all its forms. This should not be a complex issue for even a new Christian. Ambiguity? I think not. I have a much-loved adopted son, now an adult. I regularly pray for his birth mother who rejected the easy way out. When he was young, he saw an abortion program on TV and told me, I'm so glad my mother did not abort me. Dr. Luke would turn in his grave if he was listening. He knew that babies quicken in the womb at the sound of Mary's greeting to Elizabeth. Unborn John became very excited, and his view of the Messiah did not change until his beheading. Dr. Luke has explained the unborn John's excitement so well. I realize I'm not reading all of your comments out, but but I did that because it would take too long to read all these comments out, and this is really the, the part that I, I want to focus on here, and that is that, first of all, this text does relate to abortion. In fact, it's the only text that you can build, that I know of, that you can build a biblical doctrine of abortion upon. All right, the Numbers 5 text, as I mentioned before, with respect to Matthew, I, I can see why you, you think this text also relates, but that's really a case where God is casting his judgment. Whether it's an abortion or not, that's that's a, a translation issue that we'd have to return to if we wanted to dig into that deeper. But this text does relate. Now, now of course, Jenny's point here that the text is really about what kind of punishment a male-to-male assault where a pregnant woman is inadvertently injured, occurs. However, even though this verse is not, and Barbara's right too, this is not talking about somebody who intentionally aborts a baby, okay? But if you're going to make a case for abortion from a biblical perspective, guess what? This is where you're going to go. And you're going to go here because if the Scriptures treat a baby in the womb as having lesser value than an adult when it comes to the law code, then you can easily infer from that that the Bible doesn't equate the value of the person in the womb to be the same as the value of a person out of the womb. This is why we did so much work on this text. It is because it it does relate. Now, obviously, it's indirect, right? I, I completely grant that. It's indirect. But this is the text we need to do business with if we're going to convince people who believe in pro-choice or pro-abortion 
from a Christian perspective, this is, this is where we need to go. This really leads me into my other main issue here. A number of these comments express a tone, a certain tone. It seems like a number of you are upset with Jerry or upset with me because we are not as radical and as angry as you are about this issue. And look, I understand that's your opinion. This is, this is obviously an emotionally charged issue, but in my experience, people will not listen when you begin by calling them murderous perpetrators of child sacrifice. I'm sorry, but if you start with that, if that's your tone, if, if that's what I did uh, called my podcast, attention, murderous perpetrators of child sacrifice, who's going to listen to that? Who, whose mind am I ever going to change? That's just not a good persuasion technique. If you're so angry, you can't show respect and empathy for honest-hearted people who disagree with your point of view, then you really should just keep your point of view to yourself because you're going to do way more damage than good to the cause. Sure, you're going to get pats on the back from people that already agree with you, but what good is that? Do you see what I'm saying? That podcast and that tone, and it's not just that podcast, it's, it's many of the podcasts on Rest Studio, my tone, my posture is that I'm, I'm thinking of that person who disagrees with me and I'm trying to speak in such a way that honors that person as made in the image of God and, and doesn't say, you are completely lost, you are beyond hope, and you're so pathetically deceived that you have no worth in my eyes. No, I'm not going to talk to people that way because that is not going to work. If you want to be effective in persuading somebody, first of all, you have to, have to, have to get into their head. Do the hard work. However vehemently you disagree with them, you have to do the work of listening to their perspective, thinking about it the way they think about it so that you can see how it makes sense to them and then be able to put some holes in it like Jerry and I did in this podcast episode, 299, where we put holes and we put doubt in that interpretation of Exodus 21. Because look, if you if you get rid of that text right there, what else do you have? You have a lot of other indirect statements about babies in the womb, about basic principles of human dignity, of the image of God, of love your neighbor as yourself, and, and so on. And so that, that would be my encouragement to you, not just on the subject of abortion, but on any subject. Uh, now, on, on Jenny's comment about her being a health professional and therefore not have, the podcast not having any credibility, I did just want to point out that uh, Jerry Werewolf does have a PhD in biomedical engineering, that he does have an expert knowledge of anatomy. Uh, and so I'm not really sure if he had committed some, some sort of anatomical gaffe in his speech. I I didn't hear anything, so I'm not really sure why she says this, but I assure you that he does know <laughs> the different parts of the body. And, you know, he's not a he's not a practicing doctor, but he does have expert knowledge of of many medical issues and biological issues. So maybe Jenny could write back in and explain that a little bit, but that's kind of a side point. The main point here is that from a biblical point of view, abortion just doesn't fit. And therefore, if you agree with that point of view, then your goal should be to go out there and persuade other Christians that this is what the Bible says. And you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So 
that's just uh, end of my little rant here. Uh, also, Ken Laprod points out some interesting facts about how the way international perceived abortion. And uh, so if you're coming from that background, you might want to check out his comments as well. I just want to end by reading out uh, Richie Temple's comment. He says, thanks to Jerry and Sean for this very thoughtful and interesting discussion of a very important subject. He goes on, the discussion of Exodus 21, 22 to 25 is very good in that you bring out both the ambiguity of the Hebrew text as well as the likely probability of gives birth prematurely with harm. Also, probably, but not certainly, referring to either the mother or the prematurely born child. Importantly, you emphasize that even with that understanding as the probability, neither of these is a certainty, either textually or contextually. I would agree with the overall understanding as well as I think that it is the most intellectually honest position to take. Thus, neither side should use these verses as an attempt to prove their case. As for Psalm 51, the Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke was one of the translators of the NIV, and one can see his interpretation of the Hebrew meaning of the text in the NIV translation. And then he quotes that, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Though I'm generally a fan of the NIV, it is certainly subject to some translation whoppers at times. As a prime example of that, I think this NIV translation of Psalm 51, 5 through 6, and the understanding it represents is almost certainly not correct. See, almost all other translations, as well as the NICOT, and an explanation which very much disagrees with the NIV translation and understanding here. Uh, here's the commentary translation. Behold, in guilt was I born, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inmost parts, and in what is secret you make wisdom known to me. In short, taken against the background of the entire psalm, these verses in Psalm 51 simply highlight the comprehensiveness of David's sin and guilt. Here is a quote from the NICOT commentary. Verse 5 of Psalm 51 is perhaps one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Psalter. The psalmist, in the depths of the remorse for the sin committed, declares that guilt and sin were parts of the psalmist's very conception and birth. Many have understood the words to reflect the concept of original sin, a depraved nature that is intrinsic to every human being, passed on to us by the first human parent. If you recall, that is exactly how Jerry interpreted this and moved from there to make a case for the baby in the womb having a moral responsibility equivalent to a born human. Richie Temple goes on quoting the NICOT. A more plausible interpretation, however, is that the psalmist is expressing in these words the all-pervasive quality of the guilt which accompanies the wrongdoing. At best, then, this section in Psalm 51 is also uncertain as to its exact meaning and certainly should not be used to try to prove one's case about life in the womb, just as with the verses in Exodus 21. And then he concludes, But surely the uncertainty of Exodus 21 and Psalm 51 are not that important to the whole subject. Instead, the whole tenor of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation argues for the sanctity of human life as created in God's image, and therefore against abortion as represented by many of the verses set forth by others above, as well as by Sean and Jerry's other points, which you make especially near the end. 
the greater problem is the practical one of winning acceptance and applying this position in a pluralistic society where so many people and groups disagree on when life begins. This should not, however, deter Christians in, great, in the greater goals of sharing the gospel with the world and living as rightly in love and truth before God as we know how. So uh, thanks for that comment, Richie. This, uh, I do want to say something on your, your last point there. You know, my podcast is, is for Christians. You know, Non-Christians are, are probably, I mean, I would love it if they did, but they're probably not going to listen to Restitutio. It's a Christian theology podcast. However, many of us are going to interact with others. Many of us are interested in swaying the hearts and minds of non-Christians on this very important subject. And so the question we need to ask is, well, how in the world can we do that? Is shoving a picture of a mutilated corpse in someone's face, is that going to be an effective way to get somebody to question their commitment to abortion? No. No. What we have to do, what we have to do is find accessible uh, reasons, maybe you want to even call them secular reasons, that would appeal to somebody who comes from a non-Christian point of view. Now, with respect to the presuppositionalist type people, God bless you if you want to presupp people into not believing in abortion anymore, but that's, that's not really what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is explaining the science of the fetus, that you know a baby does feel pain, and, and that when the heartbeat starts and all this kind of thing. Another approach that a lot of Christians do is they'll talk about the ramifications to the mother down the line. And how having an abortion ha- it results in psychological problems. Uh, a lot of times, people will talk about how how adoption is available, and how just save the life, save the life. You don't need to kill this person. Christians have, as I mentioned in the podcast, done incredible work in adoption uh, and in crisis pregnancy centers, and that that work needs to continue. But if you start by wagging your finger in someone's face and saying you're a murderer and shouting and screaming and pulling out your hair, guess what? You've lost. You've lost before you even started because they just stopped listening right there. My last point on this whole subject is that if, if you're going to make any progress with somebody from a non-Christian point of view on the subject of abortion, you also have to deal with their number one issue. What is their number one issue? It's, it's the issue of, look, if you outlaw this, then, then women are going to die. Women are going to die because they're going to be forced to go into these back alley operations and it's going to be unsanitary and they're going to die just like they used to die before abortion was, uh, was legal in the United States. So you got to have an answer for that. It doesn't matter if you disagree and you think, well, two wrongs don't make a right. Well, look, I agree with you. In fact, no one who wrote in um, on this episode even disagrees with what we said, which is that abortion is wrong. So here's my question. If this, is how, if this is how you react to people you agree with, how in the world do you respond to people that you disagree with on the subject? So food for thought there. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. would love to hear back, and uh, feel free to push back on what I said here because this is an important, this is an important issue. How do we interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us? How do we interact with non-believers who disagree with us? Uh, and, and how can we be more effective as Christian witnesses to a God who loves us so much that he gave his son for us? So thanks for everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.